Welcome to When Things Go Wrong, a show about what to do when things you expect to go just fine simply don't. Often it has nothing to do with what you did or what you didn't do, and yet it affects you in profound ways. I'm your host, Frank Sapovitz. I've spent more than 30 years creating, managing, and producing major sports and entertainment events. And on this show, we'll meet fascinating people from all walks of life and business who had to manage difficult problems often under tremendous pressure. You'll hear from pros who will show us how they have avoided disaster or managed a crisis when one happened anyway. Today on When Things Go Wrong, we're going to explore a very human issue that deals with the challenges faced every day by the members of one particular community, those who navigate our world with a disability. As individuals and business people, It's important to be sensitized to the things that regularly and routinely go wrong for our neighbors and customers with disabilities, the obstacles that are often inadvertently placed in their way, and why it's important to do a better job facilitating their journey through their everyday lives. To start with, it's of course the right thing to do. And apart from the government regulations and the Americans with Disabilities Act that guide many of our business activities, It's also a competitive differentiator for companies that deliver responsive service experiences to the disabled community. According to a 2018 report from the American Institutes for Research, there are approximately 64 million people in the United States with at least one disability, and they have enormous buying power, with a total of as much as $490 billion in disposable income. One of the authors of the study concluded that working-age adults with disabilities are a large and relatively untapped market for businesses in the United States. Our guest today on When Things Go Wrong is a remarkable woman who is literally at the intersection of both the personal and business experience of the disabled community in the United States. Chanel Keenan was recently hired as the intersectionality consultant for the Seattle Kraken, the National Hockey League's newest expansion team, that will be taking to the ice for the first time in the fall of 2021. Chanel herself is no stranger to the ice and no stranger to the sport. And due to a genetic disorder called osteogenesis imperfecta, or brittle bone disease, she's also no stranger to the challenges that are faced every day by the mobility-impaired community. Here's my conversation with Chanel. Chanel, welcome to when things go wrong. Thank you for having me. Well, as our listeners know, Chanel, one of the most basic tenets of avoiding the worst effects that can result from when something goes wrong is robust and actionable planning. And what we mean by that is not simply writing a plan for the predictable or the possible. It's very tempting to write something up and then check off the box that we now have a plan it's important to pressure test those plans and and to make sure that they don't only look good on paper, that they can actually be executed if we have to use them, and that they will have the intended impact when we do. So let's take the example of a fire drill or an active shooter drill, an evacuation plan from our offices, our classrooms, theater, stadium, or other place of public assembly. So Chanel Keenan, when, when you've participated in those drills, They don't always take into account someone like yourself who is wheelchair bound, do they? No, I don't think that we do. I think that we think we think about these things, which is a lot of thinking in one sentence. But I found that 
you know, we're not ever put in this position until we have to be. And, and like we've said before, you can't hope that it will go right. So you have to do the work to make a plan, even if you're making a plan for a person that you don't know if they exist or not. I've been in many places where I'm always thinking about where the nearest exit is. And I think I think about it probably every day, even in my own home. I was just thinking about how I live in a one family home, but it's two separate kitchens and stuff like that. And I used to live in a, a two family home also, but I lived on the first floor and I had easy access to get outside if there was an emergency. And then I had to move. And in my new home, there isn't wheelchair access, but we were able to put a separate chair that I have in the house so that I can move around the first floor. But if there was an emergency, the closest I can get to the outside is on our front porch or our back porch rather. And, you know, it's difficult sometimes to think about what might happen in those sort of emergencies. And even my porch wasn't necessarily accessible. Um, but then my uncle built a ramp to put out there. And um, it made it easier for my aunt to have peace of mind when she would, you know, not be in the house because obviously in an emergency, you know, I, I would just get carried out because I'm quite small. So it's kind of easy to just scoop me up and take me out of the house. Um, but I think that, you know, businesses especially and, and ones with multi-level floors, again, like I said, should kind of start to think about these things because even if you're planning for someone that doesn't exist, that doesn't mean that they might not come in your building one day. And, you know, as job markets open up again, hopefully as we come back together after this pandemic, that, you know, that there will be more job opportunities for the disabled. And with that comes a need for an emergency plan. So you've participated in some of these evacuation drills and and especially when you're dealing with a multi-story situation, elevators get shut down. So what happens? What what do you do? What's your plan in a situation like that? In my experience, I found that um, they don't necessarily shut down elevators. I think that that's what they're supposed to do. Um but my plan always, and it has been since I was in elementary school, has been to just hang out in the nearest stairwell. And that's not always a feasible situation because, you know, buildings vary in size and how much real estate you have in a stairwell because they're kind of supposed to be pretty small. Um, but I found that, you know, we, t we talk about these things a little bit when we're um, together, but I kind of start to watch a lot of the emergency um, employees kind of look around at each other and try to problem solve just as we are. So they're not even really thinking about it either. And I thought that that's quite interesting because, like I said, it's even if you don't know somebody who will specifically be in the building at the time of the emergency, you can't guarantee that. So you kind of need to have a plan in place or even just a general idea where someone could easily access that person depending on what part of the floor they're on. And I don't know if that's something that one can visualize, but 
um, I've been in a lot of situations where you kind of just have to wait near the nearest access point for someone to come get you. And um, that's kind of been the plan for me the whole time. There's no perfect way to do it. And obviously, because it's an emergency, it's not going to be perfect. So. And, and one of those plans would never be heading for the elevator, even if it is working, right? Because that's just <laughs> a dangerous place to be in an emergency. So so let's say that I'm told to evacuate my office up on the 15th floor of my building, and, and I have a colleague who's dependent on a wheelchair, and the elevators are shut down, which they should be, and, and everyone is headed for the fire exits. So in, in this case, I really want to help my colleague who's in the wheelchair, but I can make a bad situation so much worse for them if I don't handle that situation correctly. So Chanel, what do I do to help you in a situation like that? It's kind of impossible to think about, but you have to slow down. You know, there's so many different ways. And and like you just said, you can easily make a situation twice as dangerous as it already was. We're already trying to get out of the building. Like you really have to put yourself in a mindset where you know time is of the essence but it's also necessary to have really clear communication and i was in a situation where i was in a building in a school building that i wasn't necessarily supposed to be in um because i was i had already graduated and so i wasn't on you know the list of people that might be in the building during a fire drill and we had one and i was on the fourth floor and there's no access to the outside from the fourth floor. There is on every other floor except for the fourth one. And I was with a teacher that I had previously. And I kind of saw the panic on his face, but he knew that it was a drill. So he did the wrong thing, which was to take the elevator down to the third floor and exit that way. But we had a conversation about like, what would we have actually done? And, and I kind of yelled at him a little bit. I was like, they have, you know, um, I think it's kind of like a gurney sort of, it's like locked up against this wall in the building that's supposed to be for disabled people. You're supposed to, you know, either wait for um, an emergency person to come help or to just do it yourself. And it kind of just looks like something you carry somebody in. Um, and usually I would just convey, like just ask the person, how you can best help them because most times they're like me and they're already planning for this in their head. You know, it's not great to have to think about this all the time. And, you know, I try not to let it consume my thoughts or make me, you know, occupied in that way, but definitely start by asking the person how to best help them because every situation and every disability, especially is completely unique and even somebody with a milder form than mine, my OI, um, could totally handle a situation much differently than I can. So it's all about communication, even if it takes, you know, even if things are happening around you and you feel like you're out of control, I think that's when you should know that that's when you need to slow down, even if it's kind of against your nature to do that. Yeah, the piece of equipment that you're talking about is an evacuation chair. Yeah. And they're supposed to be in fire uh, uh, fire exits so that they can be used to take people out of the building who are unable to to do that themselves. Um, the other thing, and and I think you're you're 
your note that we should just ask um, what the best way to do it is and, and to help you is because you know what your disability is. Um, you know, another thing I know is you, you don't ever try to lift an, an individual while they're in the wheelchair, right? There's there's just too much risk involved for both parties. The person who tries to pick up the chair could have a back injury, a loss of control, um, actually drop the chair. And wheelchairs are not designed to withstand the stress of lifting with the weight of a person in it. So, you know, it can literally break. How, how heavy is your wheelchair, for example? Yeah, so I'm in a, a power wheelchair, and they usually range from about 350 pounds to 500, and I've had both variations of that. But I think that situation alone gets avoided when you just ask the person how you can best serve them. Because That's right. obviously, if the person's like, just, you know, scoot me up and let's go, like, you don't even have to worry about the chair. And I think a lot of people, you know, me especially, I would think about the fact that I'll be without it for, you know, however long or, you know, all these different thoughts will swirl around. But ultimately, when you're put in that position, it doesn't matter as long as you and the people that, you know, are trying to attend to you um, get out safely. And I think that that, above all, trumps everything else. You know, the, the, it's the best advice I've, I've ever heard. Just ask how I can help. So if we find ourselves facing an, let's call it an active shooter situation, God forbid, most police departments and the Department of Homeland Security recommends a plan that's made up of three things. First, try to flee the scene. And if you can't escape, you next want to hide. And if neither of those actions are possible, then, and only then, do you act to try to stop the attack. But in your situation, Chanel, when you can't quickly get away or easily hide, a different plan is needed. So you have one. Share it with us. Yeah. So even though I did not grow up really around the Columbine shooting, I was definitely still in school when Sandy Hook happened. And this is a situation I've thought about many a time, and I don't know if it's because I've been exposed to certain TV shows or or if I'm just kind of wired to always be thinking like this, which is not something I brag about. It's it's kind of the worst sometimes. But I, I've often thought about the fact that, you know, I'm, again, I'm pretty small. I'm really good at communicating how to safely handle my body and, and myself. And I would feel comfortable with, um, using my wheelchair to help barricade a door. And I've thought about that a lot. Um, and, and I take that situation, you know, in any building that I've ever been in, in any type of scenario, with, whether I'm in school or whether, you know, it's a workplace one, because those happen too. Um, really any scenario where my chair or, or I can help, um, I would 100% do that because, again, it's, it's, it's pretty heavy, and um, I think the only drawback to that is we've had a couple drills at my school, and we usually just call them lockdown drills. And, you know, as I've said in the moment, like, to my teacher or after the fact, like, that I would do that. And they would be like, oh, no, like, you wouldn't do that or, you know, try to turn me away from doing something like that. But I find that to be an asset in a situation like that. But the drawback to me would be afterwards and 
when, you know, emergency services are trying to clear a building or trying to communicate with the, the students and the teachers, you know, to make sure everybody's all right, you want to kind of act quickly on that. And I wouldn't want that to, like, take up time. But I think in overall, the scenario, I feel like I would be helpful in that situation, which is weird to think about, but you never know. Well, and so what's really remarkable about our conversation is how much you have to think about all the things that none of us think about, (laughs) right? You have to think about your plan to get out of a place all the time. We who are not wheelchair bound often take that for granted, even though we should know how to get away from a place. But in your particular situation, you may need help. Um, and other people, and you're reliant on other people's help, especially if you're on an upper level. So do you request someone to be assigned to you when you, when you enter a big building in case of an emergency? Have you, have you done that? So in school, in all, all, all grades, I've had someone with me. um, And I think the unique part of that situation is Um, When I went to college, I had these students assigned to me called classroom access assistants. And what they are usually for is for people like me who need some help opening doors and moving desks around because I've been in so many situations where, you know, I can't get into the classroom because the doors just closed. Um, And that's another thing I don't think a ton of people think about is while I may be able to get into the building, a lot of the classrooms that I'm in, and rightfully so, have doors that close because, you know, there's a lot of classes going on, so you don't want it to be super loud or anything. Um, So I, I do have someone technically assigned to me, but the, the job that they have is not to serve me in an emergency, you know, their job on paper is to just help me get around the classroom and to help take notes if needed. So in some ways I would probably look to my professor to be the one to help in an emergency because I think that puts more liability in a, in a better place than on a student. I wouldn't want to put that on them, but obviously in a pinch. And like I said, I'm really good at communicating my needs and because ultimately my safety and my health is the most important to me in those moments. So it kind of depends on who I'm stuck with. (laughs) Um, And there are, I can just tell when some people are not going to be able to handle that aspect of life or if that might be too much for them to, you know, be quick on their feet. And some part of me thinks that I could also be in a scenario where, you know, they just forget about me. They're like, you know, you're on your own, basically. And I doubt that that would happen, but I have had a couple where they're a little bit flighty. So, I mean, if I were them, I'd kind of want to get out on my own, too. But, you know, I just wouldn't want them to have that moral obligation. But as far as, like, my plan when I start work in person, whether it be with the Kraken or in the future, I do think I need to be very upfront about this as a concern because it is a liability issue ultimately for myself and the organization I work for. I feel like it wouldn't be good um, if if it came out that I was like stuck somewhere um, or something had happened to me because there wasn't a plan in place, but ultimately that's my responsibility. So 
it would probably be a conversation that I would have to start, which I hope that, you know, in the future it won't be, that it will be a mutual conversation. But I don't, I haven't been in a, a situation where I've been approached about it. I've always been the one to bring up the situation. Which is, which is why if there's an emergency, I want to be standing next to you because you are the most rational <laughs> person who has thought these things through and, and you know, you'll be the person least likely to panic. That's for sure. Yeah. So I, I let's talk about your, your hire by the, by the Seattle crack and as their intersectionality consultant. Now that's a fancy name. And when I've mentioned it, to people because I find it so fascinating. They are like, what is an intersectionality consultant exactly? Right. I, I know what that job is. And now that you've told me about it, but it, it's such a great example of a very forward thinking brand. Tell, tell us about what that job entails. So uh, my job has many layers to it and the layers keep getting added on as the months go by. But originally I was hired to help with their mobile app development, which is specifically for our arena. And I think the surrounding arenas that we have to, but mainly are where the Kraken are going to play. And my take on it is helping them with accessibility uh, components that they're not thinking about, whether it be helping them understand how um, people who have um, vision impairments work and how people like me might need maps that have more specific or fine-tuned accessibility access, whether that be labeling the map with, you know, the typical handicap icon or whatever, and how you can get to the closest exit or what food, you know, it, it it's so many different layers and so many different things that you don't really think about needing to be accessible, but, you know, you don't want to be given directions to get food and it send you down a flight of stairs because that's not going to work for me. Um, <laughs> I could try it. I don't think it would go well, but it's definitely not going to work for me if that's the way that, you know, it's just specific to a walking person. And I was talking about this to my aunt this morning about how, you know, there's no, I was having a crazy dream and in the dream I'm trying to get somewhere and I have to think about what's the accessible route? Like, this is not a joke. I had a dream about how I was getting somewhere and if I could get there from wherever I was in my dream. And she was like, well, you can just do the walking directions. And I was like, yeah, I could do the walking directions, but what if the walk leads me to a curb that's not cut off? And that's the kind of mindset I have when thinking about this app of how we can most make it accessible for mobility needs and to make you know, our software accessible for those who have vision impairments, hearing impairments, anything of that nature, and just kind of bringing certain ideas to the forefront that, you know, we're not naturally thinking about. I, I think that's so important. You know, I, I'll go back to the clinical definition of a disability because it's far more broad than just a mobility impairment. We've been talking about your uh, disability, but for the benefit of our listeners, a disability is really defined as any condition of the body or mind that makes it more difficult for the person with the condition to do certain activities or interact with the world around them. So it does include our neighbors and colleagues who are visually impaired, hearing impaired, or cognitively, mentally, or emotionally challenged, right? So in your role, 
you're actively involved in making sure that the Seattle Kraken are thinking about how everyone is welcome to participate as fans of the team as fully as possible, right? At their new arena. Yeah. And also virtually. So let's talk a little bit about you as a consumer. How facilities and businesses accommodate people with disabilities can have a great impact on the decisions that you make as a customer. Yeah, I've had a lot of experiences specifically with the sports industry where we've often been really frustrated with the ticket process alone and how many different hoops we have to jump through when the average person can just go to a call window, you know, an hour, an hour and a half before a game and get their tickets and be fine. Um, That's not a reality that, that I live in and it's a conversation I've tried to start having in, in my workplace, but also just with people I know in the industry because I think it should be easier. It just should be easier. You know, it should be easier. And these are tickets that aren't just given away to anybody. And, you know, I respect and understand the parameters that they have so that it's, it is harder to get, but I feel like there should be a way for it to be easy for disabled people to get, which, you know, I just don't know if that's where their their thinking is. And I haven't seen that to be true at all because I've talked to a couple of my friends who who also like watching sports and who also have gone to the same arenas that I've gone through. And we've had the same problem with things just taking a little bit too long where you call one number and have to get transferred to three other people because they don't know how to serve you. And I think if anything having the tools to give to staff on how to direct someone to get accessible seating so you don't have to, you know, be transferred five times would be super helpful. And just being aware that, you know, we're, we don't want to make it harder for anybody, you know. We don't want to have to make extra plans to make it work. We just want to be able to show up like everybody else and have, you know, as close as the same experience. And, and that's where your, your role with the Seattle Kraken is going to be really important. I remember you telling me a story about how you shopped for colleges once upon a time and, and how a particular university handled some of the accommodations was a decision point for you in terms of whether you were going to go to that school and pay tuition there. Right. So t- t- tell us a little bit about that story. So I applied to enough schools, but I only toured about three or four. And in that process, we didn't make the attempt to warn them about me having a disability because in some ways, it's a good test to see how well they can adapt to somebody like me being there because I should just be able to roll up to any college and get into a building like I feel like that's not a huge ask I think it depends on where I'm going if I'm going to a super historic school I don't think I should expect that every building will be accessible but I should expect some of the buildings to be accessible and I went to I think an admitted students weekend at the school and like I said we didn't give them any full warning about my disability or anything like that, because it seemed like a feasible choice. And, you know, we just hadn't, this was, I think, the first college tour I went to, which also 
kind of made it worse, but that's fine. Um, so we got there and the first introductory meeting was in a smaller theater. It wasn't huge, but it wasn't tiny either. And the only accessible seating that we could get into was occupied with film equipment um, because they were recording that lecture for, I don't know why they were recording it, but the equipment was there. And, you know, the person that directed us to the seating felt bad about it, but I ultimately ended up next to it and I couldn't see, like I had obstructed view the whole time. And I personally was okay with that because, you know, I didn't warn them, so I can't completely expect them to do that. But at the same time, it made me wonder about how they handle these situations for students that do have mobility issues or that do require seating where where I was allowed to sit. So it was just interesting to see them be really challenged by me being there. And it was disappointing because I've been in other places where, you know, they've been able to think on their feet and it's not super hard. You know, I just have to be able to just have to be able to move stuff around. It's not a big deal, but it kind of felt like a big deal. And it kind of felt like I was a bother, um, which when you're trying to decide if you're going to go to a school and give money to somewhere for a long time, I feel like that shouldn't be the case, um, especially if there's money involved for them. But that wasn't how it went. And on the flip side of that, the school that I did end up going to, we had a really amazing experience. Um, and after the first day of me being there, of me having a smaller tour and having similar experiences of watching a lecture or two, um, the next day, the tour guides came up with a, an accessible plan. And it might have been one they already had, you know, in their arsenal, but they, you know, made an extra effort to um, help accommodate me. And that felt really good. And it, you know, left a little room for awkwardness when we went to the library. And I went with my tour person in the elevator and the bigger pack of students went down the stairs because, again, I was having a couple instances like that where it would just be this moment where I'd be like, where are we going to end up? Like, which floor am I supposed to meet you on? And, and that takes away from the experience. So I've had it. I've had two very unique experiences when touring colleges. And, and you spend money in restaurants and you spend money in stores. You have to actually scope out where you can go. Yeah. I and do you decide to not to go someplace because you can't easily get around? Absolutely. And it takes a lot of, you know, frustration sometimes when you look at a menu and you're like, this is awesome. I can't wait to go. And then you Google Earth it or Google Map it or whatever. And you look it up and there's a step in the front and you're just like, can't go there. <laughs> like, it's, it's frustrating sometimes. But I was thinking about how when I was in high school, I had a friend have a birthday party. And she had it at an Italian restaurant. And there was two locations of this place. And one of them was accessible and one of them wasn't. And the, the her mom told my mom that, you know, we were going to the one that was accessible. So it shouldn't be a problem. And then when we got there, we were late. Um, so that added to the, the mess. But when we got there, we quickly found out that we were at the restaurant with the step and it, we were lucky that I had um, portable ramps in my car, but 
unfortunately, it was so tight and like it was such a fancy place that it just wasn't the ideal situation. And although I was able to get in the restaurant, it was really cramped and I felt like an elephant, basically, even though naturally in the world, I'm like pretty small, but um, it took away from my experience and she had like an event afterwards and I was like, I just want to go home. Like this was so tiring and it, I was in a dangerous situation towards the end of it too, leaving the restaurant. I think like it was too steep the way that I went down and I just kind of freaked myself out. So um, that's something I have to think about when I go out with my friends and, and my family too. And something that they've had to think about too. So yeah. So, so uh, you live in the Northeast and so you have to prepare for winter weather. And this winter, we had a lot of winter weather. I live in the Northeast, too, in a different city. W- what happens if you're away from your home and snow or ice starts to pile up outside? I imagine that's not very friendly to wheelchairs. Absolutely not. It is probably the least pleasant climate other than torrential rain, um, which I love. So it's kind of it's tricky to deal with sometimes. Um, but I feel like... A lot of the times growing up, I wanted to be super independent and I, and just like any kid, it's not the disabled person in me talking. It's, you know, my two-year-old nephew right now is everything he wants to do by himself. He doesn't want any help. And that was kind of me for a really long time. And then when I got older, I realized how much easier it is to just ask for help. And it's not anything on me. It's not that I can't do something where I'm weaker because of it or any of those you know, kind of stereotypes that we put on ourselves as disabled people because the connotation is that we're helpless, you know. And I don't want to add to that in in my own mental space, but after I got past that point in my life, it was just so much easier to just ask random strangers for help if I drop something or, you know, if they are near the door, I can ask them to open it. Like, I don't have to finagle it every time by myself. And just like in the winter weather situation or a severe weather situation, I have to call, you know, for help or if I know somebody near me or if I'm alone, which I think would really happen, but who knows, I would have to call, you know, 911. And that doesn't feel bad to me. And I think I'd probably try to figure it out myself. But ultimately, again, kind of like with the fire drill situation, my safety is the most important and I'm not going to put myself in danger in that way if I can prevent it. So my obvious choice would just to call for help. Well, and, and you know what? We can all take a page from that advice, right? When we need the help and we're not as independent or we are just kind of lost at, at what the next step is. Asking for help is a good way of, of handling those kinds of problems. So you participate in teaching sessions with kids to share your story and the importance of understanding the challenges faced with people uh, with, you know, by people with disabilities. So what kinds of lessons do you want to make sure that that kids take away from your talks? I have just done a couple summer camp stuff and I've been a paraprofessional one summer and I just leave it open to them. I let them ask questions, even ones that 
like they giggle about, you know, one time I had a kid ask me if I slept in my wheelchair, like if it was my bed. And I thought that that was really funny um, because I'd never been asked that before. But kids are so innocent and want to learn all the time. And I think that we could all stand to take, you know, some notes from that because they're not scared of me. They just have questions. And, you know, ignorance can come off ugly sometimes, but in kids, it's just curiosity. And so, you know, whenever they have a question or whenever they ask me something that can even sound offensive to the to the average person or the average adult, I answer them genuinely because that presents situations that I grew up in where I'd go to the grocery store and kids would stare at me or they'd point at me or, um, you know, they would do that and get scolded by their parent. But I would much rather be like, what are you pointing at? Like, do you have a question about my wheelchair? Do you have a question about me? And then... It always would freak them out when I would like say hello because they didn't think that I could talk, which was also funny to me because I don't stop talking. Um, but I think it's important to foster that curiosity in, in all facets when it comes to race. And, you know, I'm I'm of multiple backgrounds. You know, I'm disabled. I'm adopted. I'm a woman. I'm Asian. Like I'm so many different things that I'd rather people ask questions about the makeup scenarios in their head or you know just be ignorant when I can take that opportunity to teach so sharing your wisdom with children will definitely pay dividends in promoting a, a new generation of designers developers business people just plain citizens who are more sensitive and responsive and inclusive and now knowledgeable thanks to you so what about adults though but what are the three top things you want people to understand and to act on about the challenges faced with by those with disabilities? Well, I can only really speak for myself, but I think having open communication and even in the example I gave about kids being forthcoming with questions, I think that's okay too. As long as, you know, as you have a thought in your head that's like, I don't know if I should ask this, this kind of seems inappropriate. It probably is. Um, but for me personally, and again, I can really only speak for myself, I love getting weird questions. I think it's important. I think it helps humanize disability and, you know, it destigmatizes a lot of stuff when, when I can openly talk about how, you know, I've had to shop mostly in kids' clothes and adult clothes until recently. And, you know, that's a byproduct of a lot of weird consumer things, but, um, it's, it's, I think it's important to ask questions and to communicate as clear as possible because most times, you know, we're equipped to answer them. And although we shouldn't, as the disabled population, have to do that, have to educate all the time, I think especially if it's in a workplace situ situation, you want to have those conversations so that there is no, you know, wondering if I'm okay to talk about something or not making a plan because you're worried about how you might come off ignorant. Like that could be a conversation that could save my life. So I don't want there to be any, you know, disregard for a, a sticky topic when, you know, I'm a person that's completely open to that stuff because again, like I only see the benefit to that, even if it is uncomfortable. So getting uncomfortable is probably the number one thing that I would say. And you know, be empathetic and be um, just 
nice and it goes a long way. It does. And it also, you know, I'd say beyond that, what, what you've taught me is that you have choices that you need to make too. And in terms of being able to uh, decide where you're going to spend your money, how you're going to spend your time, uh, all of those things are related to your ability to take advantage of those spaces, right? Getting to and from them, uh, being able to go in and out safely. And that goes not just for disability, uh, uh, disabilities involving uh, mobility impairment. It would include uh, visual impairment, too. And, and and others in other situations. We've been talking to Chanel Keenan today, an advocate for inclusion and accessibility for the disabled community and the intersectionality consultant to the NHL's newest team, the Seattle Kraken. My own conversations with Chanel, I've had several and I've enjoyed every single one of them. They have broadened my understanding of the many often overlooked challenges of a variety of disabled customers, colleagues, and neighbors. And by applying those understandings, we can make better sure that things will go right for them and for us more often. Chanel Keenan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experiences with us on When Things Go Wrong. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. Learn more about how to plan for and survive the inevitable blips, bloopers, and blunders of life and business in What to Do When Things Go Wrong, available in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. I'm Frank Sapovitz, and remember, if it hasn't happened to you, it just hasn't happened to you yet. The When Things Go Wrong podcast is produced by Chris and Mandy Wimmer and is a production of Black Barrel Media in association with Fast Traffic Entertainment. You can find more Black Barrel Media shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. For more background on this show, join us at Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, at B Barrel Media on Twitter, and on our website at blackbarrelmedia.com. See you next time, if all goes well. (laughs) 